All right, if you could uh, turn with me in uh, Ephesians to chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 to 7. So in these, uh, in Ephesians 1, rather, uh, Paul explains that as believers, we have been chosen, made heirs, redeemed, forgiven, and equipped with the Holy Spirit to have the capacity to understand the purpose and plan of God for ourselves. Then in chapter 2, we learn that our condition was before God saved us, and who we are today because of Christ. All of this hinges on the first two words of verse 4. So don't miss them as I read from Ephesians 2, 1 to 7 from the NIV. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For the last number of years, as elders, we have divided up the preaching schedule by month, each one of us taking a month at a time and working our way through the rotation that way. This year has been a little bit more choppy based on schedules and my desire to preach some specific passages. But the month of March was Pastor Ike's month. And if you know Pastor Ike well, you know that he is a planner. He likes to have a plan figured out far in advance, and he is very diligent at working ahead. That is a cute baby right there. Because that is mine. That's why I can say that. It is good. Anyway, Pastor Ike, he works ahead, has a plan far in advance. And the other thing about Pastor Ike, if you know him well, is he works, it seems like, all the time. He goes to Florida on vacation and he works on his sermons, on all the things he's working on. He has a stay or a work vacation at home, and he continues to work. He is a very hard worker. And so many weeks ago already, Pastor Ike had all his sermons for March outlined and well on their way. So when he was hospitalized last Friday, once he got his computer on Saturday, he emailed me all of the material that he had prepared for this month. So today, I'm going to be using Pastor Ike's outline and some of the material that he has prepared, but I've also added my own material, so you're getting a little bit of a mixture this morning. But as you can see at the top of your notes, the title for today's sermon is Really Living, Now and Forever. And this follows last week's sermon, which was titled The Spiritually Walking Dead, As we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and reviewed our spiritual state before Christ. As we mentioned last week, as believers, it's so important for you and I to know and to understand who we were before God saved us. Because if a person doesn't know who they were, does not know where they have come from, they will not understand who they are today in Christ. And the other reason why we must understand our former spiritual state 
is so that we can comprehend, we can understand just how amazing God's mercy and grace is toward us. If Paul would have started Ephesians chapter 2 with verse 4, with these words, and God being rich in mercy, which is how it could be translated, we would have been encouraged, but also a little bit confused. Why does God have to be merciful? Well, the answer is God has to be merciful because, verses 1 through 3, we, our children, were children of wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. As Ray Comfort likes to say, until a person understands the bad news, the good news isn't really good news. You and I must understand that we, just like everyone else in the entire world, is not basically good. Instead, we are all dead, spiritually speaking. Thus, we need to be given life. And we cannot give ourselves life. Only God can give life, which is exactly what we're going to see here in verses 4 through 7. And when God gives life, you and I are able to live not just now, but for all of eternity. Some of you may be familiar with the name Damar Hamlin. He was a safety for the Buffalo Bills professional football team. And on Monday night, January 2nd of this year, he collapsed after making this tackle that you see pictured here of the wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. After tackling that player, his heart stopped. And for nine minutes, the medical team gave Damar CPR. He was about to die physically. From a medical perspective, we could say that the medical team brought him back to life because there is a short window of time between cardiac arrest and death. That incident provides an analogy of Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. Just like Damar, we were dead, in, a, in a one sense, in our trespasses and sins, verses 1 through 3. We were the physically walking, spiritually dead of this earth, verse 4. But God. Don't you love those words? But God, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ when we put our faith and trust in Him. And so if you haven't done that That is, if you haven't put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done by making you alive, enabling you to walk spiritually, be alive, to move from spiritual death to spiritual life, today is the day to make that decision. But if you have received Jesus as your Savior, then you are already really living now, and you will really live for all of eternity. God tells us why that is based on Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, and how that can happen. In these verses, we're going to see three facts and one purpose, which if you and I embrace them, if we believe them, we will have life now and forever. Our goal as preachers is to let the text speak for itself. That's why we seek to preach exegetically, preaching what the text says, following the structure of the text. 
And so if you open up your notes to the full page, you can see how the outline that we're going to be working at this morning flows directly from the text. You can see there at the top that the main subject, the subject of Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, is the word God. There in verse 4. He is the subject. The first main verb is in verse 5. God, verse 4, main verb, verse 5, made us alive. That is the main subject and the main verb of these entire seven verses. And so everything we looked at last week in verses 1 through 3 is modifying, is explaining the truth of why God made us alive together with Christ. But that's not the only thing that God did. The second main verb that is in verse 6 is he raised us up. And then the third main verb, God seated us with Christ. Why did God do that? Well, that's verse 7. Verse 7, in order that, so that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. That's what the text says, and so that's going to be the outline that we're following this morning. As we begin by looking at those three main verbs, which provide the three facts that we're looking at. The first fact that we see is that the only true God can make you live. The only true God can make you live. It is so important that you and I understand that we contributed nothing to God making us live. We were dead. We were hopeless. God is the one who makes us live. God is the originator of our salvation. God is the architect. He is the contractor of our salvation. And that's not because you and I were willing, cooperative recipients. Not at all. Remember verse 3? We were children of wrath. We were living in sin and enjoying it. We were following the world's way of thinking, the world's way of living. We had no interest in God. Even when we heard the truth, there was something inside of us that was repulsed by the idea. This is why it can be hard, it can be difficult to share the gospel with those around us. Because our unbelieving coworker, our unbelieving family member is dead in their trespasses and sins. And they are by nature a child of wrath. They don't want to have anything to do with God. So how do we reach them? Well, we continue to pray for them. We continue to share the truth with them, helping them to see their actual state, that they are the spiritually walking dead. But it is then that God is the one who is going to be working in their hearts. God is the one who convicts them of their sin. God is the one who draws them to himself. God is the one who gives them life. Because only the true God can make someone live. You and I, we're simply messengers. God is the one who does the work. Paul reminds reminds us of this truth in verse 5. Look at the text again. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, he's the subject, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so this leads to the question, what kind of life are we talking about? And why do we need this life? Paul's answering it here for us in verse 5, right? 
He reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses. Death speaks of separation. We were separated from God because of our sin. We were under the wrath of God. We were on our way to hell. We were dead spiritually. That is why we must be given spiritual life by God. So what is the spiritual life? Well, the spiritual life is the same thing that what Jesus was referring to in John 3 when he told Nicodemus that he had to be born again. Remember when Jesus was having that conversation with Nicodemus? Nicodemus wanted to know how he could see the kingdom of God, how he could have a relationship with God. And Jesus told him, you have to be born again. Jesus wasn't talking about physical rebirth because that's impossible. Jesus was talking about a spiritual rebirth, a regeneration, a bringing back from the dead to life. This action of making us alive, of being born again, is not an action that we can see with our eyes. But it is just as real as anything that you can observe around you. In John 3, Jesus compares it to the wind. None of us can see the wind. You and I see the effects of the wind. We hear the sound of it, but we don't know where it comes from and where it is going. And Jesus said in the same way, with the spiritual rebirth, we are made alive. We cannot see that action with our physical eyes, but we can see and observe the results. God is the one who makes us alive. We sang about this truth this morning. Remember this song? We sang this verse, man of sorrows. What a name. For the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Another verse. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. We were dead. Spotless, lamb of God was he. And then another verse. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior. This is the life that God has made us alive to. Because as the hymn mentions, we were in desperate need of life. We were guilty. We were vile. We were helpless. We were ruined sinners. As the text says, we were dead. Have you ever heard a young person say, I have no life? Well, literally, before salvation, each one of us had no life. We were condemned We were enemies of God. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. He gave us life now and forever. But why did God do this? Or we could ask it this way. How does God leverage that? How does God accomplish this work? And why does he even do it? Because remember, we were God's enemies. We were the children of his wrath. We don't deserve this life at all. So how and why does God make us alive? Look again at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God chose to make us alive first because he is rich in mercy. Think about that. That's like having a bank account that can never be depleted. 
Every time you make a withdrawal, a deposit has already been made to cover it and much more. This is what Lori reminded us of us earlier as she sang these words. And each time I will fall short of your glory. How far will your forgiveness abound? And God answers. And what does God say? My child, I love you. Isn't that what the text says? God chose to make us alive because he is rich in mercy. And secondly, because of his great love with which he loved us. God's love is incredible. It's almost unbelievable. Because God chose to love us when we were his enemies. So much of our human love is based on what we can get out of a relationship. Even in engagement and marriage, naturally, we love our spouse because of all the benefits and blessings they give to us. This is why we have to be instructed. We have to be reminded to love our spouse like God loves us. Because that doesn't come naturally. You see, God's love is not based on us. It's not based on our worth. God's love is not based on our value or what we can contribute to the relationship. God's love is solely his choice to do what is best for those whom he chooses to love. Which is actually a really good thing for you and me because not a single one of us could ever deserve God's love. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive. And notice, it is his great love. It wasn't just a little love. God was not simply demonstrating the minimal amount of love to make us alive. No, not at all. It was his great love, which was demonstrated in the riches of his mercy when he made us alive in Christ. Think about that. All of us were dead. We were the spiritually dead. We were children of God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And as the end of verse 5 mentions, it was all an incredible display of God's grace. You see that there in the text? By grace you have been saved. Are you in awe of God's grace? God's grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. We have done nothing to earn it, to deserve it. God's grace is incredible. And so if you and I are really going to live now and forever, we must understand and believe that the only true God can give life, eternal life, because of his great love, which was displayed in his grace. We must never take this for granted. We must never slump into thinking that this isn't that big of a deal. Because this is the biggest and the greatest news that you will ever hear or experience. The fact that we have been saved by grace should humble us 
It should also inspire us to really live now and forever, to worship God with our entire lives, and to carry out the good works which God has prepared for us to do. God could have simply spared us from hell and then told us to go figure out life on another planet somewhere apart from him. But that's not what he did. God made us alive together with Christ. We have a relationship with God. That is incredible. All because of his grace. Not only does God make us alive, but notice the second fact. God, the only true God, can lift you up. Remember, God is the subject of this entire section. The first main verb is he made us alive. You see that in verse 5. The second main verb is in verse 6. God raised us up. God lifted us up. So if we could, could, let's go back to that illustration of Damar Hamlin. After tackling that wide receiver, he's laying on the ground in desperate need of life. And he received life in the form of CPR and then being taken to the intensive care unit at the Cincinnati Hospital. From that point, he has been slowly regaining strength and recovering. He is being lifted up. But the difference, the eternal difference between Damar Hamlin and you and I is that while Damar Hamlin is being lifted up through physical therapy, it's possible that he's never going to be able to play professional football again. But God, on the other hand, when he lifts us up, he raises us to new life with Jesus. He raises us to a position better than any position we had before. The life that we have been raised to is better than any fashion of life that we had before. And so for us, it's like we're lying there on the ground in desperate need of life, suffering from cardiac arrest. We are given life and that we are strengthened to play any sport at an elite level that we could have never done before. God has lifted us up to a position much better than anything we had. Now, while there is some overlap in the truth of God making us alive and God raising us up, I think one of the distinctions that Paul is getting to when he's talking about us being lifted up, being raised up, is growing into the new position that we have in Christ. Because you may have noticed that the main verbs, the three main verbs, are all in the past tense. Do you see that there? God made us alive, verse 5. Verse 6, God raised us up, past tense. God seated us with him. You see, these are actions that God has already accomplished. From his perspective, they are done. They are completed. But for you and me, we have our entire existence on this planet to grow in our understanding and our living out of the reality that we have been raised up with Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. Join me there. Keep your finger here in Ephesians chapter 2 and join me in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Paul, in this chapter, is combating the idea that because we are saved, we can live any way we want. He says, no, not at all. Instead, because we have died to sin, we should no longer be living in sin. So notice what he says, starting in verse 4 of Romans chapter 6. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We have been raised up. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the parallel? The truth is, we have been raised up with Christ. We are united with him. We have been lifted up, enabling us to say no to sin because we are now dead to it. But as Paul is going to continue to explain in the rest of Romans 6, for the remainder of our life, this is a continual process of living out this reality. Day by day, we are learning to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, to live as a person who has been raised up with Christ, lifted above the pull and power of sin. Let me illustrate it this way. On Tuesday evening, you receive a knock at your door, and when you open the door, there stands a man in a nice suit holding a briefcase asking if he can come in and talk to you. You invite him in. He sits down at your table. He opens his briefcase and hands you a stack of papers as he explains to you that you have been appointed to be the new co-CEO of Amazon. As co-CEO of Amazon, all the work is already being done for you. You simply have the title and position. As co-CEO, not only are you going to receive a nice salary, but you are granted instant access to any merchandise Amazon sells. You have been raised up to a new life. The next day, you're coming home, and as you drive, you remember that you need some groceries. So you swing by Dollar General. As you are filling your cart with hamburger helper and cans of beans, it hits you. That all you have to do is ask, and you can have gourmet steaks delivered to your house in less than an hour. But then you begin to think, but how am I going to prepare these steaks? Oh, that's right. I have that old cast iron skillet on the bottom drawer of my stove. That should do the job. But then it hits you. Again, all you have to do is ask, and you can have the best (laughs) grill ever. You see, it's taken some time. But you are understanding the position that you have been lifted up to, raised up to in Amazon. And it's the same way in the Christian life. You see, our position in Christ is even better. And so day by day, we are understanding, we are living out the position we have been raised up to, lifted up to by God. Because as we do that, we are going to be able to really live now and forever. 
And that's true. Not only because God has made us alive, lifted us up, but also because the only true God can lock you securely in eternity. Again, this is a past tense verb. We have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's done. You see, our salvation is not just something that impacts our life here on this earth. Our salvation is secure for all of eternity because we are seated with God in Christ Jesus. We are seated with Jesus. This is incredible. Jesus promised this to the church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 when he said, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the truth. This is the reality. This is true right now. It is completed, even though it doesn't feel that way to you and I. You and I are ensured enthronement with Jesus. Even though currently, it may feel like you're sitting on a steel girder, ten stories in the air, with the wind blowing on you and storm clouds rising in the distance. Life is difficult And it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. Maybe you're like those two construction workers who were building a skyscraper. They stopped for lunch. They were sitting on that steel girder, 10 stories in the air, eating their lunch. The one guy said to the other, pretty nice having lunch in the executive board meeting room, isn't it? The other guy says, what are you talking about? The first guy pulls out a copy of the blueprint and shows him that the place that they are eating is the exact place where the executive board room meeting will be constructed. That is how it is for you and me. We are guaranteed a seat with Christ. Our eternity is secure. God has made us alive. God has raised us up and God has seated us. Those three truths are connected. The fact that you are alive spiritually guarantees that you have a seat with Christ on his throne one day soon. Because notice, it is not limited. There is no limit. There is no limit to the joy, to the peace, to the comfort that you are able to receive right now here on this earth and then on for all of eternity. You can really live right now because God promises to be with us each step of the way as he takes us through the valleys of life. But remember, there is coming a day when he will wipe away all tears. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain in those heavenly places. Many of our loved ones are already experiencing that perfect reality right now. As David writes in Psalm 1611, they are in God's presence, experiencing fullness of joy. They are at at God's right hand, experiencing pleasures forever in the heavenly places. And right now, you and I get to experience a taste of this. Right now, we are able to receive the comfort and peace that only comes from God. We can have joy amidst difficulty. But on that day when we get to heaven, it will be a billion times better. 
There is no limit to the peace, comfort, and joy, and pleasure we have access to because Jesus is limitless. Jesus is limitless. Limitless. Jesus isn't just human. Jesus is the God-man. As you see in the text, it is him that we are seated with. Thus, in Jesus Christ, you and I are eternal. We are invincible. We are unconquerable. We are lambs for the slaughter. Just like Jesus. Because remember, we may and probably will suffer here on this earth, just like our Savior did. We will probably die physically. But remember, physical death simply provides the doorway into this eternal, glorious, perfect life which God has locked us as believers into. And so the question is, do you really have this life? Are you seated with God in the heavenly places in Christ? Are you secure in Christ? Remember, Jesus' love is limitless. Nothing can separate us from his love, as we're told at the end of Romans chapter 8. And so as you and I understand this truth, we will be able to live our lives with purpose and hope. As believers, we have nothing to fear. We are able to have courage as we eagerly anticipate that day when our faith will be made sight. And so from today... And every day in the future, for all of eternity, we are able to really live. Not just exist, not just mope around, but but really live. Because God has made us alive. He has raised us up and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Those are the three facts that you and I must believe, we must embrace, we must understand, and we must live out each and every day so that we can really live now and forever. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 7. Verse 7 gives us the purpose. Because notice it starts with the words, so that. Maybe your Bible is translated in order that. Paul is preparing to give us the purpose, the explanation for why God has shown you and I mercy by making us alive, raising us up, and seating us with him. Why did God do that? Verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We could say it this way. God has given you and I eternal life and position in Christ so that the only true God can light up the ages with his glory. God has designed everything to point to his glory. Our salvation, our position in Christ isn't primarily about us. It's all about God and his glory. And notice, this is not something that is just going to be on display in that moment we believe and are saved. God's glory is displayed in the moment of our salvation, but his glory will continue, can I say it this way, to linger into the ages. Do you see that phrase there in verse 7? The ages to come. This is referring to all of eternity. For all eternity, the surpassing riches of God's grace will be on full display for all to see. 
as I was reading these verses in preparation for the sermon, one of the first questions that popped into my mind was, who is God going to be showing his grace to? Because notice it says in verse 7, he's going to show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So my question was, who? Who is he going to show that grace to? And the answer seems to be to everyone, anyone, all believers down through the ages. I think it also includes the angels as well. All of God's creatures will have the opportunity and privilege of seeing the surpassing riches of his grace for all of eternity. Now, in some ways, that's hard for you and I to get our minds around. Because we we struggle to grasp eternity, at least I do. And so we struggle to grasp a grace so great that there will always be more to show off and display. But as we remember that God is infinite, he has no end. We understand that his grace is infinite as well. That's why Paul is describing it as the surpassing riches of his grace. There will always be more and more displays of God's grace in our lives for all of eternity. But just think about it. Right now, we could spend hours upon hours reviewing the grace of God that you and I have experienced in just the last week, let alone the last month or even our life. The older we get, the more evidences we have of all the ways that God's incredible grace has been put on display in our lives because of Christ. And then think about all of eternity when it's just going to be compounded forever and ever. The reality is, all of this will be electrifying. It will be thrilling. It will be the most exciting thing ever. Do you ever get goosebumps as you hear stories of how God is working in people's lives? Saving them, transforming them, sparing them. I love to hear how the grace of God is redeeming marriages and relationships that were on the rocks. Because those stories are testimonies of the surpassing riches of God's grace. And as we hear what God has done, it is electrifying, it is exciting, it is thrilling. And so then imagine for all of eternity, all the stories, all the accounts that God will show to us, that God will put on display. Each and every day, you and I experience God's grace. Many times, we're not even aware of it. We are unaware of the circumstances that God has arranged to provide us with the opportunities we have. And so for all of eternity— we're going to be able to hear account after account after account after account of all the ways that God has worked in our lives and in the millions of other believers' lives as well. It will be incredible. It will be an amazing display of God's glory. God will truly light up the ages with his glory. But we don't have to wait until eternity to begin to see all of these displays of God's grace. Each and every day, there are evidences of God's grace all around us. So may God give you and I eyes to see all the ways that he is working. 
Because as our eyes are open to those truths, we will be really living now and forever. Because our eyes will be turned from the trouble all around us as we set our eyes, set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The other reality that we must keep in mind is that God has saved us to serve him. We're going to look at this more next week in verse 10. But we must not forget that each and every day, you and I have the opportunity to live for God, to serve him as we await that day when we will stand before him. On that day, when our works are revealed, God will be able to show forth the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us. And so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, how much will be on display? Are you living for God and serving him with your life? Or are you living for yourself? If you're living for yourself, you're going to be terribly disappointed on that day when there's not much to display of God's grace when all your works are burned up. So remember, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body so that he can display his glory now and for all of eternity. So in conclusion, as believers, we are individuals chosen by God for his glory. We already saw in Ephesians 1, and it's being emphasized again here in chapter 2, where we're also discovering that we have been saved by God to serve him. Why do we need to understand this? Because as believers, we are soldiers in enemy territory. We're going to see that in chapter 6. We are non-resident aliens. We are pilgrims. We are travelers who have a great need to know who we are and the equipment that we have been given for this journey and the battle ahead of us. And so in order to carry out the orders of our supreme commander, we must know who we are and the resources he has given us. And so this morning, we have been reminded that God has made us alive. He has lifted us up and he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. As a result, our eternal destiny is secure. And we have the opportunity to show forth God's grace in every aspect of our lives as we faithfully follow him. These truths enable us to see ourselves as God sees us. Secondly, to deepen our worship and awe of God who has saved us. And finally, to motivate us to carry out the good works which God has planned for us to do. May God strengthen us to these ends this week. As we saw in verse 4, all of this is possible because of God's mercy. For believers, the riches of God's mercy never run out. And so as we close, let's remind ourselves of this truth as we sing, His mercy is more. Stand with me as we praise the Lord, remembering that His mercies are stronger than darkness 
and new every morn. Let's turn to him today.